This is episode number 93 with Kate Shanahan. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Dr. Kate Shanahan is a board-certified family physician, and after getting her Bachelor of Science in Biology, she trained in biochemistry and genetics at Cornell University's Graduate School before attending Robert Wood Johnson's Medical School. She practiced in Hawaii for 10 years where she studied ethnobotany and her healthiest patient's culinary habits. She then applied her learnings and experience in all these scientific fields to write her book, Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. And in this episode, we chat about her story and how she got to where she is today. We talk about the silent killer in your food that you want to avoid, what this silent killer does to your body and how you can avoid it. We talk about the three C's and the three S's that you want to remove from your life. She gives loads of detox tips and the only oils that you want to use in your kitchen. She also chats about the truth about dairy, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 93. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to read the review of the week. And that comes from Jasmine Jean. And she says, Hi, lovely human reading this. Since listening to Melissa's podcast and reading her book, Mastering Your Mean Girl, I have successfully come off my antidepressants. I have realized my self-worth and feel truly amazing about how much I've grown in such a short amount of space. Melissa is a beautiful, inspiring woman and an absolute goddess. She is a role model and I can't believe how much she has conquered. I hope you enjoy her podcast as much as I have. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for that beautiful five-star review. I'm deeply grateful. And don't forget to leave me a review for your chance to be the review of the week next week. And without further ado, let's dive in. Let's bring on the amazing Dr. Kate Shanahan. Kate, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you on today. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? I had my favorite breakfast, which was cold brewed coffee, about a cup of it, extremely strong and uh, grass fed raw cream and milk. I bought another cup, probably about three to 400 calories because of the massive amount of cream. And that probably fills you up for a very long time, I'm sure. Yeah, I haven't had anything else to eat. Wow. And it's 6.40 now. (laughs) Wow. So is this something that you do all the time or is this just something that you do occasionally? 
I am totally addicted to it. If I'm traveling, I have to bring it a frozen um, raw milk with me and my coffee and the whole setup, but um, it's worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we often travel with little bullet blenders and all sorts of different things. It just makes it so much easier when you've got your food that you love to eat or drink. It just is so much better. So I am super pumped to have this conversation with you today. I loved your book, Deep Nutrition. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you do now? Well, thank you, Melissa, for having me on. Um, So I'm a family physician and I had graduated, oh, so long ago, like in the 90s, probably before you were born. And um, the uh, idea behind my going to medical school was that it was like the third fallback. First, I wanted to be an engineer and then I wanted to be a genetic engineer. And, um, and, and then when I realized that I wasn't going to be able to design a bacteria that could digest baby diapers, which was like the big environmental challenge of the day that, um, I should just go to medical school. Like I wanted to all along, but my dad was saying there were too many doctors and I wanted to, because I had mostly because dad was a doctor actually. And I just thought it was super cool that he always knew the answer to stuff. Like my mom would be like, you know, uh, does, does Dan need to go to the doctor? He's like screaming all night. He has this fever. And my dad was like, ah, he probably just has an ear infection, just throw some antibiotics. I just like knew knowing the answers. So I went to medical school and I found that there were answers that there were lots of answers, but kind of like, I felt like there was this sort of underlying question that remained that uh, remained uh, tragically unanswered um, for some of the more common things that that people had. And when I first graduated medical school, things like hypertension and type 2 diabetes were kind of limited to senior citizens, right? So we attributed it to aging. But as I practiced longer, I started seeing more and more of it in younger folks. And actually, I just read this statistic that, I mean, I was so shocked. I I like I fell over practically. 29% of three-year-olds are either overweight or obese. And something like 10% of children have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. How can we progress as a species if this is what's happening? It's kind of like mind-boggling there. But anyway, so as a regular doctor graduating uh, from medical school, then residency, we don't really we don't really learn these things. We don't learn what causes them. and And we just kind of learn to go along with all the different kind of societies that that tell us what to do and what to think and how to solve these problems, like the American Heart Association, which is a medical society that tells us that cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, needs to be under a certain number or our patients are at risk for heart attacks and we're being bad doctors if we don't get them on a statin prescription medication that blocks your liver's ability to make cholesterol, as well as your brain's ability to make cholesterol and a number of other very important molecules. So, you know, I had this sense that but this was so now we're uh, like in the late 90s um, and I'm practicing in Hawaii and I have this vague sense that my patients with hypertension and diabetes and high cholesterol and heart attacks and strokes uh, in spite of their cholesterol being under control I have this sense that something's missing and I don't really have the slightest clue what to do about it so I didn't do a thing it was not until something happened to me that I kind of realized where to look for answers. And I had an issue with my knee where I couldn't, I actually, I couldn't walk for two years. It was, it's still a mystery. It remains undiagnosed. I had all kinds of surgeries and procedures and stuff and nothing helped, but 
I figure it was some kind of maybe a virus. And because nothing helped, my husband actually, who had been urging me to stop uh, having so much sugar and maybe eat a little bit better, I actually listened to him for the first time in a long time and read a book that he handed to me called Spontaneous Healing by Andrew Weil, who was really the leader in this like of this whole what has exploded now into an entire movement. There was a time before, you know, supplements. <laughs> Andrew Weil kind of started a lot of that. I mean, it was already going, but you know, he really made it a, a mainstream. And the thing that was in his book that caught my attention was the phrase omega-3 fatty acids were like essential fatty acids. So omega-3 fatty acids, now everybody knows that's why you take your fish oil. But back then, you know, I had never heard of them. And I had also learned that, you know, fat was basically all bad. It was just calories. It was just there to make you overweight and give you heart attacks and do every other bad thing that you could possibly imagine. So when I learned about these essential fats, I, um, as a biochemist, which is one of the things I was when I was, um, um, you know, at Cornell, doing molecular biology, we were learning a lot of biochemistry. I couldn't help but be interested and ended up, even though I couldn't walk, I flew to the neighboring island, Oahu, where the closest bookstore was because Amazon didn't deliver to Hawaii in those days. And um, I had to physically go and wheel myself through the airport. And I bought a bunch of biochemistry textbooks and read cover to covers so that I could really get a handle on the biochemistry of fats and answer, answer this question, what are essential fatty acids and why do I need to know about them? And in answering that question, I came across the whole fallacy of the idea that saturated fat had anything to do with causing heart attacks um, and uh, became comfortable with the with just telling patients that it was total BS, basically, <laughs> that you need to avoid butter and eggs um, and actually understood that these things are healthy and understood that the real problem in terms of fats uh, was the vegetable oils that we'd all, you know, been told were actually healthy. Like I, I actually didn't grasp that in my medical training that, that polyunsaturated fatty acids were healthy. We, we didn't learn that, but we did learn that saturated fat was particularly bad. But vegetable oils are in things like soy and sunflower seed and canola oil and are a huge part of why people are sick these days because we are consuming that these oils um, and they're they're not good for us to consume in this quantity or just having been processed the way they were. So they're they're really bad for us for two reasons. Just the other night, we were going out to dinner and we very, very, very rarely go out to dinner because I think our cooking is the best and the healthiest. But this particular occasion, we were going out to dinner and I do as I always do and call up before I go and make sure they know and can cater for my dietary requirements. And I always ask them, what oils do they cook with? And if they can cook without the industrial nut and seed oils, and this is an absolute non-negotiable for my husband and I, but we feel a little bit like lone rangers here. And it seems like it's the one thing that even the health conscious people don't talk about. They let it go or they never ask the questions when they're out. 
you know, they'll say, is it gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, whatever else free? But what about the carcinogenic trans fats, the vegetable oils, the canola oils that almost every restaurant and cafe cook with because they cook with it because it's cheap and it's flavorless. But what are these trans fats actually doing to our bodies? You've got that absolutely right. They are the seed oils and they are the kind of fat that is in the seeds that these oils are extracted from. It's very important to understand the kind of fat. It is not saturated fat and it doesn't start out as a trans fat either. It starts out as a naturally occurring kind of category of fat called a polyunsaturated fatty acid. And actually omega-3 fish oils are in that category. They're omega-3. There's the other half of the polyunsaturated fatty acid world, which is omega-6. So those two kinds of fatty acids, the omega-3 and the omega-6, are both polyunsaturated fatty acids. And the, the, what, when we say polyunsaturated, we're actually describing a chemical term. Trans fat is also a chemical term. And these are actually descriptions of chemical bonds between carbon molecules that, you know, you don't really need to understand all this in, unless you love this stuff. But um, the, the bottom line is that because of the chemical nature of the polyunsaturated fatty acids having these unsaturated bonds that are weaker than the saturated bonds um, in terms of their ability to withstand heat and processing. And so they just break. And that's why they are toxic because they break and they form new molecules that don't exist in nature that our bodies cannot defend against and that are actually promoting aging, rapid aging, because of the way they interact inside our bloodstream and in our tissues promotes something called free radicals or reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So how can we avoid these? Obviously, we know that they are incredibly bad for our body. They're carcinogenic. They're not good for us, right? So how can we avoid them? Besides doing what I do, which is call up before I go to any restaurant or cafe, how else can we avoid them? And if we do accidentally have them, how can we support our body to detox it as quickly as possible? Those are both great questions. So the best way to avoid them is to educate yourself as to what they are, right? So that's kind of step one is memorize this list. There are six that are the most common. There are three C's and three S's. So corn, canola, cottonseed, soy, sunflower, safflower. Memorize that. That is what you need to look for whenever you're buying anything that has an ingredients list, right? If it doesn't have an ingredients list, well, it's probably not in there because it's probably not processed and probably not required to have an ingredients list. So anything with an ingredients list, you want to scan it for that. This is where kind of like it can get frustrating, right? Because they'll add this stuff to spice mixes where you're actually, your dose that you're getting exposed to is really minimal. And I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, it's, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I would say it's something you just can't avoid. And it's not worth the trouble of avoiding because in the end we have to live our lives. So how do you tell if it's just added to the spice mix? Well, in America, usually they have to separate it out, right? Like if it's, if they'll say like, you know, natural flavors or, or something that will indicate that this is a list of spices and it'll be in there in the, like uh, mixed uh, close together with like onion powder or something like that. 
And so you know it's going to be in a very minor content, but in a very minor amount. And it's typically the foods that we kind of already know are bad for us or are very oily that you want to watch for. So what do I mean by we already know are bad for us? Well, chips, right? Or crackers or cookies and baked goods. Nobody thinks of those as health foods anyway. The thing to understand is that you can get one that's gluten-free or paleo or whatever. And if they're kind of trying to pull a fast one on you, then they'll be using some kind of a vegetable oil, one of the three C's or the three S's, or even like some of the palm oils are also not good. Um, And so what is good is basically is olive oil or when we're talking about stuff like, you know, treats, maybe you should just make it yourself. (laughs) That's not a very sympathetic answer. But, um, but the other thing when I say oily foods, like, I mean, like mayo and, and uh, salad dressings and dips and sauces, So like an Alfredo sauce, right? Or a marinara sauce that you get if you're in a hurry and you just want to put something over your chicken or something, you want to get a brand that uses olive oil and only olive oil. The same with mayo. You can find a lot more brands now uh, that use avocado oil, which is just great. I recommend you you spend the, I think it's probably going to be like an extra, well, maybe twice as much as the cost of, uh, two or three times as much, actually, I should say, as the cost of an ordinary mayo, but it's worth it. Yeah, or just make it yourself. Yeah, if you're a miracle worker. <laughs> we can't. My, my husband and I, we have tried and we just can't do it. Some people say it's no problem. You know what? When we make our mayo, it's like a hit and miss. Some days we get it and we're so good and we're like, yes. And then other days it's a complete fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so what do we do to detox it if we do go out and we know that we've had it? How can we detox it out of our bodies really quickly? Right, so your body has enzymes that are your best defense against these things. They're called antioxidant enzymes. And you know, you've probably heard a lot about antioxidants, right? Like flavanols and resveratrol and all kinds of plant-based antioxidants and even... Um, even some vitamins that have antioxidant effects. But the most, the number one, most important first line of defense in your body is these antioxidant enzymes, which our body makes out of proteins. And so we want to have the key amino acids that are essential to the active sites of these proteins, which tend to be cysteine-containing amino acids. If you've heard of the antioxidant glutathione, it's because glutathione is required for these antioxidant enzymes. That's why we need glutathione. And that also is made out of um, a sulfur-containing amino acid, cysteine. So eggs and uh a lot of seafood are some of the richest sources of this particular amino acid. But if you're getting a good amount of protein from, particularly from animal products, you're going to be getting plenty of this amino acid. So that's one aspect. The other aspect of what you need to keep your antioxidant enzymes working is minerals. We all know minerals are good for us, but actually after building bones, I would say the most important use of minerals is these antioxidant enzymes because we have an enormous need for these enzymes like all over our mitochondria which are the um, energy producing cell organelles in our cells they're in every single like nook and cranny of our tissues they're in every single like part of our cells so 
they're so important because if we can't control oxidation reactions, let's say if we wiped out all of these antioxidant enzymes, we'd probably be dead in six seconds. <laughs> so back in the 70s, there was this thing to be afraid of called um, spontaneous combustion. Did you ever hear of that? No, can you explain it? <laughs> okay, I don't I don't know. I don't think it's really true. But it, it was kind of like Bigfoot and stuff that it would be like you would just be sitting there and the next thing you know, you'd turn into a pile of ashes. And there'd all be all these like stories about how people who saw it happen and they'd sound so traumatized and stuff. And it was like clickbait before there was clicks <laughs> clicking. But anyway, so but you know, reading about like how important these antioxidant enzymes are, I can almost believe that if somehow or rather you just developed a massive um cell-wide deficiency of them, you absolutely would spontaneously combust. <laughs> so there's that bit of uh trivia science fiction possibility out there. But anyway, the minerals that you need, there's like um six key minerals, okay? So um and they're they're very common but oddly enough, uh, when you look at the percentage of people who are deficient in these minerals, it's pretty high, pretty sad. It's you know, somewhere around 50%. So iron, selenium, magnesium, zinc, copper, which almost no one is deficient in because it's in the water, and manganese. So those are like the, the main ones, which is like almost all the minerals that you need. So foods that are rich in these things are, um, are abundant. You know, they're not super hard to come by. But because you have to really be kind of on your game about it, I kind of recommend a couple supplementation, a supplementation with a couple of them, just because they're low in the, they're harder to come by even on a really well-balanced diet. And those are magnesium and zinc. So I, I in uh, Deep Nutrition, I have um, a section in the back where I talk about what supplements I, I recommend that everybody get just because of soil depletion and the difficulty with with getting adequate amounts of these things, even on a fairly well-balanced diet, because our idea, our modern idea of a balanced diet is way far off from what an actual balanced diet is, even, you know, if you're paleo or keto and stuff like that, because there's things that are missing. Mm, that's a really good point. And definitely if I think people should get some testing as well and, and find out what else is going on for them, it's really important that you know. I see a lot of people that just kind of go and take things willy-nilly and don't have the data. So, you know, go and, and get the results so you know what's going on for you. And we can all agree that these trans fats are not good for us. And I really, really, really want to just say that again, because if we all started asking every time we went to a cafe or a restaurant, they would start to shift. But because everyone is putting up with it, they're not going to change. But if they have more and more people saying, hey, you know what? It's not okay to cook in those oils. It's not okay. So, so please be the voice. Yes. I think that is what's going to have to happen. You know, we're going to vote with our feet. Exactly. And most places will either cook in butter or olive oil and even olive oil's not good at high high temperatures so you just have to ask there are some health cafes that will use coconut oil you just need to ask so everyone listening start to ask at every restaurant and cafe what oil do you cook with do you mind cooking in you know coconut oil or butter or olive oil just stay away from those trans fats the three c's and the three s's and if we all did that they would start to shift 
Absolutely. And I want to make things just a little bit simple too for your listeners and for everyone, because actually, you know, the idea that olive oil has a higher smoke point and that therefore is problematic is one of those uh, myths that the guys selling us the canola oil have used to sell us more canola oil. So the idea of smoke point actually is why we've heard that olive oil shouldn't be used for high heat, right? Because it'll start to smoke, whatever that is. So let's talk about that. So when they say smoke, uh, what they actually mean is smoke point is technically defined as the temperature at which you will see a thin wisp of gray smoke starting to form when you're only cooking the oil and nothing else on a pan. Now that is a factor of how refined the oil is more than anything else. And when you refine an oil, what you're doing is you're removing the protein and you are removing uh, the free fatty acids. So that if a very high quality olive oil will actually have a little bit of protein and it will have more free fatty acids too than a highly refined oil, even a highly refined olive oil. The more highly refined olive oils have the higher smoke point. And this is where maybe people can start to relate to what I'm talking about. Like um, if you've heard of, you know, virgin cold pressed olive oil, that um, has a lot of color to it. It has a lot of flavor. It's very gently treated. That's why it's more expensive. It is literally, um, you know, cold pressed, meaning they can't heat it up at all. And they don't use pressure to extract any more oil either. And so it contains about as much of the olive as you can possibly get into it, which includes a lot of antioxidants and vitamins, a little bit of protein, and yeah, some free fatty acids, which are going to lower that smoke point. Then there's all these grades of olive oil where there's, so extra virgin unrefined is the best and then virgin refined. And then it goes into like light olive oil. And that is an olive oil that has been about as refined as you can do and still have it be suitable for human consumption. There's this thing called lampinate olive oil, which is not considered suitable for human consumption, but gets used anyway, unfortunately. And it's got the word lamp in there because I think they were using it for lamps (laughs) to ignite and burn. So that oil though, the light olive oil has a higher smoke point. And so that is what a restaurant will use because of the smoke point, right? But we wouldn't say that the light olive oil is better for us in any way. And so I think maybe that's where chefs, particularly if any chefs are listening to this, hopefully you can start to relate to the idea that the smoke point has absolutely nothing to do with what matters most about an oil. And what matters most about an oil or a fat is its molecular stability, right? If it's gone up in smoke, well, then it's not in there anymore to hurt our health. Not that I recommend setting your food on fire, but you know, no one does that anyway. And so that's another reason why it's not an issue. We simply don't let our food smoke. And if it does, we consider it burnt and disgusting and we don't eat it. So the smoke point is a non-issue because a decent chef will not sit there and let the food. And if they do, they probably won't serve it to you. And it's, and also it is a, um, it's worse than a non-issue because it's kind of like it's a red herring or a straw man. That's the thing. It's a straw man. It's distracting us from the real problem, which is the molecular stability or instability, um, which is what uh, we were talking about earlier with the seeds that have the polyunsaturated fatty acids because they are unsaturated, they are unstable, they cannot handle heat and they molecularly break down and they will break down into toxic molecules, including toxic molecules that have a trans bond in them so that we can call them trans fat. But there's a whole other mess of them, Melissa. They have like, there's like an, an unending amount of them almost. There's at least a dozen categories of fats, uh, like cyclic, po- 
hydrocarbons and um, ox- lipid hydroperoxides and lipoxides and epoxides. And they're all bad, 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 bad. And so we can just call them trans fats just because it's sort of like a shorthand term. That's what when my husband and I were trying to figure out how to express all this in our book, Deep Nutrition, we were just like, let's just call them all trans fats because you know that's what everybody's heard of. The point I'm making is that the polyunsaturated fats break down into all this nonsense, right? All this chemical gobbledygook before anything starts to smoke. So the smoke point is no indicator of that happening at all whatsoever. It is merely an indicator of when the thing literally starts to smoke and the stuff that that causes smoking is not the saturatedness or the unsaturatedness. <laughs> it's the protein content and the free fatty acid content, which are, they're not bad for us. It would be fine. Butter has a very low smoke point for a fat um, and it's got a good amount of protein in it for a fat, right? There's still some, it's like one or 2%, but butter is not toxic <laughs> in any way. It's extremely nutritious. So, and you can cook pretty much anything you want in butter, right? Like you can't do a stir fry, but you can, I can't think of anything really else that you, <laughs> what else would be a problem to cook in butter? You could cook fish in butter. You could, you know, saute chicken in butter. You, you can, you can do a lot of stuff with butter. Why wouldn't you do a stir fry in butter? Stir fry, first of all, the, t- the flavor profiles don't work. I think maybe that's the main reason. <laughs> The stir frying is a very high heat and and butter usually, because there's so much protein in butter relative to oil that you would add that I would recommend, which would be like a peanut oil is something I'd recommend. A, a little bit of sesame oil is something I would recommend. You could use avocado oil. You could use coconut. You could use, you could even use olive oil. I've had patients do that. They told me it was fine. You get like another hundred degrees out of it. And you know, you are stirring this stuff, right? You can't just let it sit there and forget about it because it will start you know, burning, but the food that you're cooking is going to start burning long before the oil. So if you were out at a restaurant or a cafe, what oil would you ask them to cook in? If they had a couple to choose from, what would you say? So I've learned not to bother asking about peanut oil because there's so many people with allergies that I don't think, I mean, maybe one in a thousand restaurants is going to chance it these days. That leaves pretty much oil-wise, olive oil. But I always also consider maybe they could just cook something in butter. So that's what I'll do. I'll say like if they've got fish on the menu and they're like, oh yeah, we can cook it in. Oh yeah, we have olive oil. And this is how it goes. We have olive oil um, in our oil and I'll go, oh, okay. So is it a blend? And they'll go, I don't know. And they go back to ask the chef and it's, oh yeah. So this, uh, it's an olive oil blend. So you don't want that either because it's a blend of canola oil and olive oil. Soy. And so then I say, well, would they be able to just cook it in butter. And then then they'll go back and ask the chef and they usually come back and say, yes, no problem. And it comes out delicious. (laughs) Awesome. This is really great information. Thank you so, so much. And everyone listening, don't be afraid to ask. Please don't be afraid. You don't have to be rude. Like you just say, oh, is it okay if you cook in either olive oil or butter? Like, is that okay? And they'll do exactly what you just explained and they'll go and they'll ask the chef and then they'll come back and it's so fine. As long as you're nice about it, they will be really nice back. And I just want to encourage people to speak up, speak up, speak up, speak up, because we have got to stop this trans fats dilemma that we've got going on now. And the only way that we will do that is by speaking up. 
and making a change within our own family and when we go out. So please speak up and and really be mindful next time you're out. Just have the conversation. Just say, hey, just wondering what oils you cook with because I can only have olive oil and butter. And just have a conversation, an open dialogue with them about it and see how it goes from there. And um, I always call up first. Before I go anywhere, I always call to make sure. Otherwise, you get there and they're like, no, we only have canola oil and that is a big no-no for me, so I won't go. If it's a birthday or something, I'll eat before I go. I just won't eat because it's not worth it for me. It's not worth it. I do so much great work for my beautiful temple that I've been given and it's not worth it. Like I don't, I can't be bothered, you know, I don't want to. So thank you for saying that. But what do you usually cook with at home? Yeah, so very similar. So definitely either olive oil or butter. And those are kind of our favorites. And then the next, like if we're going to do a stir fry, uh, we'll use peanut oil. And one of my favorite oils is sesame oil, but it is highly polyunsaturated. So because it's a seed, right? It's the seeds, the tiny little seeds that usually end up causing problems when you refine them. But why is sesame oil okay? Well, because it's not really refined. Think of it as like a flavoring agent because it is so powerfully flavorful. Toasted sesame oil is just absolutely delicious. And, you know, the the sesame seeds themselves are very oily. So unlike a soy oil or a corn oil or canola seed, you know, these are seeds that don't want to give up their oils, but sesame is a traditional food and it is a traditional oil because it is so oily and it has been bred to be extremely oily and to yield a great amount of oil without requiring any kind of heat or pressure or refining. So that means that as it sits in the bottle, it is very healthy. And um, and it, yes, it has polyunsaturated fatty acids in it, but you know, those are still essential fatty acids. That's why I heard about them in the first place is because omega-3 is a, something that we need for our brains. And you know what? We don't talk about this a lot, but our brains are actually half omega-3 and half omega-6 in terms of their construction uh, from polyunsaturated fatty acids. It's half and half. And omega-6 has gotten a lot of bad press, right? Because it has also this capacity to promote inflammation, but that's a transient effect. So it's not like if you eat omega-6, you're going to suddenly become inflamed. It's only in the setting of a physiologic need for inflammation. And that's the same with omega-3. They are anti-inflammatory only in the setting of a physiologic need for anti-inflammation. So for example, I'm talking about like if you cut your finger, you need those omega-6s to help clot your blood quickly. And if you're having a baby, <laughs> you need a lots of those omega-6s so you don't bleed to death, right? Because there's a lot of bleeding going on there. But also the whole process of uterine contractions and relaxation and the coordination of it requires the balance of omega-3 and omega-6. And you know, the, I understand that the reason that omega-6 gets this bad rap is because we tend to have relatively more of it than the omega-3. And that's important to recognize because that is true. It's an imbalance, but it's not like we get, we would have that imbalance if we were just getting it from foods, right? From seeds and oils that are traditional. It's only, we only have this extreme imbalance because of two things. One is the excessive, incredible explosion in the 
percent of calories we get from these processed vegetable oils. And the fact that in America, and hopefully not out there yet, we're feeding our animals soy and corn, which makes their fat extremely high in omega-6. And so bacon, which is kind of like a staple of the low-carb and paleo um, communities, has a lot more omega-6 than really it would had um, the pigs been given a more balanced kind of a diet, which they used to get. And this is why you have to source grass-fed, grass-finished animal products. If you're going to eat animal products, you need to source the best quality so they're not being fed corn and soy. Is that right? Absolutely right. So yeah, pigs don't do a lot of grazing, but um, when it comes to pigs, it's there's you know lots of other foods that they should be getting aside from the grain. And right now, you can actually so this is kind of where it gets a little tricky. You can actually have a pig be technically pastured, uh, you know, outdoors or free range or whatever, but all that they're being fed is the corn and the soy. Still, it's going to be a better pig and healthier for you than one that is not pasture that is you know raised in confinement even though it's fed those things as long as you're aware that you really shouldn't make bacon you know a, a staple unless you're basically 100% sure of what the pig is eating you know i mean you can have bacon several times a week if you want but but it shouldn't be i've known people that have it every day for breakfast and that's not balanced anyway but it, it's going to get you too much if you aren't guaranteed to know what the pig ate Mm, I think anything like that every single day is, you know, we've got to be mixing it up and eating the rainbow and otherwise you're going to give yourself an allergy to things. Like if you eat the same thing every single day, yeah, you've got to get all the different colors and textures. I think that's, you know, one of the beautiful things about the abundance that we have access to. What are your thoughts on ghee, coconut oil and lard? So both of those are great. Now, I prefer butter to ghee because uh, it has been less processed. So ghee as is made by heating butter. And anytime you heat anything, you are actually having a potential to destroy some nutritional value, right? So we, and of course, we have to cook with our food, but we, we don't need to cook it more than once. So so the only reason that um, ghee ha- was like invented in the warm climates where it was invented was because it the pro- removing that little bit of protein really helped to preserve it, right? So it's, it's more of an artifact of the lack of refrigeration. It's not really, it's kind of one of the rare exceptions to the rule that a traditional food is generally healthier than a non-traditional food. Well, now, I mean, technically speaking, ghee in India um, is a traditional food and butter isn't, (laughs) at least not in India. But butter, uh, the way that it's made in the colder climates uh, with, you know, not being heated again is definitely healthier. Traditionally, dairy was not pasteurized. And I think that's probably fairly obvious. Why not? Right. We didn't have like pasteurization equipment (laughs) until a hundred or two years ago, whenever it was invented, like in the late 1800s. And we didn't have all the resources or the fuel to heat it. And there was, there was no need to do so. And there still isn't as long as the animals are properly cared for. But that's where we run into trouble because these days with pasteurization, a lot of the industrial scale farming has come to rely on poor treatment of animals and um and so that you need to pasteurize your milk if that's all that you can get but but when um you have a small dairy farmer you know most of them they know that they have named their animals they get sad when one of the animals is so old that they have to you know retire it (laughs) 
uh, turned into hamburger. Um, so, you know, this is a completely different scenario. And the dairy that's coming from these kinds of cows is completely, completely different in every way. It tastes different than dairy that comes from confinement um, animals and industrial scale um, farms that really should be pasteurized. And all of the products really should be pasteurized. And that includes butter, right? So even, you know, in America, we can, we really just can't get fresh butter on any kind of a scale. So we have to get pasteurized butter. And still, it's better when it's grass-fed than when it's from the cows that were fed grain and soy. It's definitely worth the money. And again, it's maybe two or three times as expensive, but it's got a, a bunch more valuable nutrients, including one that a lot of people take omega-3 supplementation for, which is omega-3. It's It, it has omega-3 fatty acids. And at, in the summer months, it has actually way more than fish oil capsules. Commercial dairy, just I cringe. I just cringe thinking about it and that it is such a huge industry. And every person that goes and gets a coffee from the local coffee shop, they are probably using commercial dairy. And I just, oh my goodness. And again, it's another one of those things. We can turn this around if we start to make a shift. If we all just stopped buying it, we could make a shift. So please be mindful of that. Like every time you buy your coffee, two or three or four coffees a day, you know, ask ask for a coconut milk or, um, you know, ask if they have any other options there because most likely they will be using commercial dairy and we vote with our dollar. So that's something to be really mindful of here. Nothing changes if nothing changes. And if we want to be the voice and if we want to make a shift for our earth, then we've got to make that shift. And it starts with us. It starts in our own home first. You know, it really does, Melissa. I'm so glad you are saying this because a lot of folks don't want to kind of be that person that, <laughs> you know, I guess they kind of feel like it's a it's being a troublemaker a little bit. But Maybe if you think about it as being an, a public service announcement, you know, you know, you're not necessarily going to change anything that day. But the the server that you're asking, hey, do you have coconut oil or hey, do you have grass fed dairy? It, they're gonna, you know, hear that if they hear that enough, they're gonna possibly go and educate themselves, right? And so that's just how it's going to have to be because it's not profitable to sell high quality food when everybody wants to get the cheapest food possible. And so, you know, it's it's just going to have to be that enough folks ask for it where there's more farmers even making it. I don't know if you caught this a couple of years ago, but there was some something about butter in Sweden being sold for $800 a pound. Did you catch that news flash? Like four or five years ago? No, I didn't. <laughs> well, it was because because basically um, so many people came to understand that saturated fat was actually good for you and to um, seek out butter that at that point, for a short while there, the, the supply really couldn't keep up with demand. And I, I suppose it was, you know, it could be a tiny bit apocryphal, but um, I'm sure there was some truth to it that people were paying ridiculous amounts for butter just because of the demand. And, you know, this, this is where like, the real change I feel like has to come from when people raise their children. We have to, like, if we don't start saying things like, you know, farmers are really important people <laughs> to our children, no one's going to go into farming because that's what happened. I live in New England. You know, New England and the entire country of America was founded by farmers. 
our like founding fathers were farmers. They all lived on farms. They knew how to milk cows. And now farming is like looked upon as like a, you know, well, you know, nobody wants to do that. It's manual labor. And, you know, uh, who really thinks about going into farming? Does anyone ever encourage their children to do it? You know, and it's just like, that's the real problem that we don't respect it. We don't respect all the knowledge that farmers have and all the stuff that they have to know about in order to like birth a cow without killing it in the middle of the night, you know? I mean, (laughs) and how connected they are to the planet and the cycles. And it's just an amazing set of knowledge and skill set. And if if we continue to devalue it the way we have, it's going to be impossible to really create this shift. So, Kate, I would love to shift gears a little bit now and turn the spotlight on you. And I'd love to ask, what do you attribute your success to? Oh, I'm not sure I've had success. I guess, I mean, I've survived, which is great. (laughs) But as I'm a primary care doctor primarily, and it's been a struggle really in this country. Um, And I, I don't know if it's much better over there, but in order for a physician to actually help their patients as a employee of another group or a hospital, we are basically in service of a system that is designed uh, to profit when people are sick. So, you know, I mean, it's really impossible to thrive as a person who wants to improve their patient's health. So now it just so happens though, that I've just been hired at like at a place where I can actually help people's health. So, you know, for 20 something years, I had been working as an employee of um, either another doctor or another group or a hospital system where we use insurance. And the goal there of my employer has always been for me to see as many people as possible so I can bill more individual visits, right? So it didn't matter if I made anybody healthy. It didn't matter one bit, actually. And, you know, I would, I was always pushed to see maybe 20 people a day, which leaves about seven minutes to actually speak to your patient and um, in between all the phone calls and other paperwork we have to do. And there's doctors that see 30, 40, 50, 60, even 100 patients a day. And they basically just, you know, they, they basically just uh, pat them on the head and shake their hand and say, you know, it was nice seeing you in church the other day. Here's a specialist or here's a prescription. And there's pretty much no thought or detective work. So but where I'm shifting to now, which like, you know, will hopefully make me feel like I've had success <laughs> is to work with and uh, directly with an employer. Because in, in this country, the employers generally pay for health insurance, which sucks out all the capacity of the doctor to actually provide health. And so more and more employers are and insurance brokers are finding ways because there's barriers to prevent this kind of relationship, but they're finding ways to develop um, a direct relationship with physicians so that those people who um, have interests in alignment, namely the employers who want their employees to be healthy, uh, no matter how long a doctor has to spend talking to a patient, and the doctors who want to make patients healthy, and it will take more than seven minutes to do that very often, are finally like their interests are aligned here. So, I mean, this is like a situation that maybe one in 10,000 doctors in this country actually get to enjoy, if that many. So I'm very excited to have it. It's not like an entrepreneurial kind of situation where I'm going to have people working for me and selling all kinds of products and stuff like that. It's just basically 
uh, actually getting back really to what we had. Um, funny thing in Hawaii, uh, before it was a state, there were all these sugar plantations and the plantations had a company dock. <laughs> and they kind of probably did a better job than um, than doctors do now, <laughs> even though you know they didn't have like any equipment or anything other than penicillin to give the the uh, the um, employees. So I don't attribute it to anything other than hard work, really. Nothing particularly exciting there. And then um, you know my husband's actual talent of writing a book that um, an employer uh, was that it was interesting enough an employer to read and um, kind of be inspired to do something really uh, new and outside the box as far as, as what he's doing. <laughs> I'm just doing the same thing I've always done, uh, wanted to do, but just in a better situation. <laughs> and what's one thing that's bringing you the most joy in your life at the moment? Well, one thing I really enjoy is I actually enjoy writing quite a bit. And so I am writing another book and it's going to be a very practical book. And so like right at this minute, I'm going through the kinds of recipes and foods that I've been teaching my patients about for the past 15 years and putting it all in a bunch of chapters in a book. And I've never actually had the opportunity to do that before. So it's it's really actually been quite a lot of fun. And I'm kind of also reaching out to some of my friends who are chefs and have good ideas around around that as well. So that's like the work, the work passion. And then when I need a break, I go for a walk in the woods. <laughs> mm, two of my favorite things, walking in nature and riding. So yeah, and I can't actually wait to get your book. It sounds amazing. Oh yeah, I hope so. It's uh, it's going to be. Uh, it needs to be pared down quite a bit. I hope my editor has um has a good thinking cap because it was supposed to be like two hundred and fifty pages, and so far it's like five hundred. So <laughs> I can relate. I've had that issue, and it's very interesting trying to cut it back. Yeah, I mean, hopefully there's lots of uh, weeds in there that she'll that she can see the weeds through the uh, good stuff. You know, <laughs> tell the difference. <laughs> Yeah. So what's one thing that you're working on or would like to improve within yourself at the moment? I believe we are students for life and I'm constantly wanting to grow and learn and be the best version of myself. So what's something that you're currently working on or would like to improve? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not something I think about very often, honestly, um, but like the biggest thing is just uh you know personal relationships and and cultivating continuing to cultivate friendships and being a good friend to my friends that is something that um, I'm always trying to do but don't really have a lot of like time to figure out how to do it so I hope um, that once I'm done with this next deadline I'll, I'll be able to move more in that direction mm, that's something I'm consciously aware of a lot as well as wanting to really nurture those friendships and really pour a lot of love and energy into them and I find I'm not the type of person that can have 15 friends it's like I'm more of a really close group of soul sisters that I pour a lot of love and energy and attention into. And it's often just the little things like just checking in and sending little voice messages or text messages saying, I'm thinking of you, or how did you go with that presentation or, or appointment? And just those little things that really make such a difference to um, my friends that I've found really work. Oh, that's a great idea. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. 
Now, let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Which book would you choose besides your book? Actually, um, you know, my goal, if I could wave a magic wand um, and that I think would, in a way that would fix um, so many broken things um, in this world, it would be to inspire children to become farmers. I mean, it sounds almost banal, but there's a lot of problems that we have now because in this country, and I think in America, we led the way and in a way that we shouldn't be proud of at all. Um, and industrializing farming, you know, after World War II, they were very proud of it uh, because it increased, you know, yields and stuff, but it did decreased nutrition. And we've continued that. And we, you know, the thing about it is that we've completely dismantled the educational system around self-sufficiency and around the uh, appreciation of the, the relationship with nature that, that, people who we call farmers really have, right? I mean, there's really more to it. I mean, the word farming actually seems like it's not the right word. <laughs> there should be a better word because what they do isn't just produce monoculture crops, right? That We give the same word to people who basically sit in a, you know, a tractor or somewhere operating a, sa- a satellite that turns water on and off in these giant fields. We give the same word farmer to those people producing monoculture soy or or whatever that we do to people who have like their families and their children are all integrated in the the development of animals. They know that like it's a complex multi-layered system of um, it's an entire ecosystem really that from the soil to the organisms in the soil to the plants that grow off the soil to the animals that eat those plants and the and that fertilize the soil and everything again I mean it's so integrated and there's so much knowledge there and we give it the same word farmer and and you know it's the rare person these days in this country who actually wants to go into farming and I always feel like I have to ask them you know why it's like almost like what happened to you that made you want to take this path less taken. And it's so important to do, but we just know, but I never hear parents talking to their children about, about, um, what, you know, how great it would be if you went into farming. I never hear that. It's always like these money-making, um, you know, lay back and, you know, do your job from a beach kinds of (laughs) management positions that get the prestige and everything. And, um, you know, that's a shame. And so if there were a book that could inspire high schoolers to get back in touch with what it is that actually made us human, because more than anything else, our, our food and our knowledge of how to feed ourselves is what made us human. We actually, you know, I talk about that in deep nutrition is that Without those skills of not just cooking, but also cultivating healthy food and healthy plants and animals, we never would have made it this far. This is what elevated us from where we were just crawling around in the, you know, on the tundra, uh, if you believe in evolution, right? Um, then that's what got us out of that. And if you consider yourself, you know, a, a scientist and b- do believe in evolution, then you want to kind of maybe figure that we need to understand more about how that happened and try to mimic actually what people were doing 100 and 200 years ago, living off the land, 
because there was so much more, so much more skill there. When I was in Hawaii, there was a lot of pride in the way the native Hawaiians lived. There was like maybe 1% of people who actually had native Hawaiian blood and it was all very diluted, but there was still a lot of pride because they were close, close to that that heritage, you know, it was only maybe 50, 60 years ago when electricity kind of came to the island. And until then, people were very self-sufficient. And whether or not they were Native Hawaiians, they were still doing the same kinds of things. They were living off the land. They were hunting. They knew how to grow healthy animals. They knew how to hunt healthy things. And they knew how to grow healthy plants and fortify the soil and the whole thing. So we got away from that. And and that's what's killing us. That right there is what's killing us. And if we don't change it, no matter how smart we all are in terms of you know understanding how the body works and everything and all the cool biochemistry that we've learned, it's going to do no good because we're not going to have healthy things to eat anymore. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Even just like growing some of your own veggies, like, you know, just getting your hands in the dirt and having your own veggies in your backyard, like just starting there, you know, just something like that. I think we've really lost touch with that, like you said. So maybe it's a book on farming and gardening and or something like that. Does any come to mind or or no? Well, there was a book from the 1940s called The Victory Garden, and it was about, um, it was kind of an American propagandaist thing, but it was a good kind of propaganda. It inspired uh, people in their homes to grow their own food because there was so much food being diverted away from the grocery stores to the war effort. Um, and, um, and there was like this backyard bounty of food that was produced. And I just recently heard a some crazy statistics, like something like 40% of the vegetables people would be growing in their own little yards. Like we're not talking about farms. We're talking about maybe like a, you know, a quarter of an acre at most, because it's just so easy when you work at it to um, to to make that much food. So yeah, it was called Victory Garden, and it was like from I think Rodale Press put it out, um, you know, generations ago. But it's still out there. Great. We'll link to that in the show notes. Now, I would love to hear. Do you have a morning routine? I love hearing about how people prime themselves and set themselves up for the day. So, do you have a little morning routine, and can you walk us through it? Sure. Yeah. So I set my alarm for seven in the morning and my cat comes in at 6.30 and wakes me up. <laughs> and then I spend the next half hour love hating my cat. And then I um, ultimately sometime get out of bed and feed the cat and um, and then start uh, my real routine, which is um, I do like a 10, 15 minutes of stretching and like core exercises that I've had to do ever since I became halfway old and now I'm really old. So I really rely on it. <laughs> I basically can't move if I don't do it. And then I have the um, cold brewed coffee and um extremely a lot of fresh cream and uh, milk in the coffee for about like uh, probably it's probably like the equivalent of a cup of half and half every morning. Um, and then I start writing or if I have to go to work, I head off to work. Mm, lovely. I've now got three little rapid fire questions for you. In your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Just one thing. Really, uh, the first thing is the vegetable oils, just getting a handle on um, where they're coming into your body. 
you know, for the average American, I don't know what it's like uh, there, but uh, the average American gets about 80% of their fat calories from vegetable oils. So it's, it's a massive problem that people have no concept about. And once they start looking, they uh, start realizing that it is indeed in everything. So that's really the most important thing. Mm, I know. I just really, really hope everyone listening just start to be aware of it. Look at the packets, look at your packaging, ask questions, just really be mindful of it because it is not good for our beautiful temples. I'd say it's more important to do that than to quit smoking, just to put it in perspective. If you're a smoker, that um, that this is a worse habit than cigarettes. Whoa. Okay. All right. I've got two more rapid fire questions for you. What is one of the most important things that we can do today for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Look for an expert that actually has an abundance of of wealth. If we're talking financial, because I have none of that. (laughs) Or look for an expert who is like come through something, it's a really tough time and and became happy. Because I I cannot pretend to to be that. (laughs) I'm not saying I'm unhappy. I just, I feel like there are so many people out there who have great advice that I don't want to even like step in onto that stage with them. (laughs) It really is important that you do seek advice from people who have done it. So you go to a personal trainer who is healthy and strong and you seek health advice from someone who is vibrant and healthy and you seek financial advice from someone who is stable in their finances not and not someone who is hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So yeah, I think that's a really great point. Like seek your advice and wisdom from people who are living it. That's very important. And there's so much on YouTube now. There's so many great TED Talks. Like there's a guy I just ran into I, who I kind of found very inspiring. His name is Simon Sinek. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, he's got a bunch of TED Talks on uh, finding your, start with why, right? And so that's a really, it's a really great um, YouTube to, to look at. It, it, he's talking about trying to help people be their greatest self. So that's what he does for a living. And uh, I found him pretty inspiring. Yeah, I've read a lot of his books and watched a lot of his videos and and this is what I do. I help people become the best versions of themselves and I have been through the health challenge and I have been on the dark side of unhappiness and depression and anxiety and coming through the other side and being where I am now, it is so incredibly rewarding. But when you're in it, it can feel really dark and challenging. It can feel really hard and you're like, where is the light at the end of the tunnel? Where is it? But it is there. It is there. It's always there. We've just got to remember that, I think, and remind ourselves that this too shall pass. Everything is always fleeting. Everything's always passing. Hang in there, right? Like that cat (laughs) on the rope. (laughs) Yeah. All right. What is one of the most important things that we can do today for more love in our life? I suppose the best answer always to that is give more love, right? Isn't that like what the Beatles taught us or tried to teach us? (laughs) Right. If you have it in your heart, then express it and then it comes back to you. Yep, exactly. And I'm a massive believer in service and being of service to others and the world. So what is one thing that I can do or the listeners can do to serve you today? How can we serve you? Oh, what a great question. I have no idea. (laughs) 
let's see. Um, I guess, I mean, just you've already served me <laughs> by having me on your show. And um, I would just love it if you could link to my website and and then uh, whatever, I'll, if uh, I'm sure you could come up with a lot more things than I can. If you would do that, that would be amazing. Yeah, we'll link to your website. We'll link to Deep Nutrition and all of your social channels in the show notes. So don't you worry about that. Okay, you've stumped me with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to share with the listeners? Anything that we haven't touched on or anything that you really want to express from your heart to our beautiful listeners? You know, don't be afraid of of trying things and failing thing at things, right? You just try again. I'm sure some very smart person has has some clever thing about that. Like if you don't even try, then you know you're going to fail or something. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about um, uh, fitness, exercising, eating right, and then getting that back to the earth, you know, the gardening, getting your kids. I know a lot of folks have their biggest challenge is getting their kids sort of to be more on board with the kind of eating habits and lifestyle habits that that they themselves want to have. And it's t tough for them because their kids may not want to eat the foods that they like. And so, you know, just trying, just keep on trying and gently, right? Just gently keep pushing and being a role model. And the only way you can do it, that's the only way parents have ever done it. <laughs> It's interesting you say that because I have a 12-year-old bonus son and I first met him when he was five and then we got together around uh, when he was seven. And so it has been just a non-negotiable. Like we put this beautiful nourishing food in front of him and it's not up for discussion. And I hear it a lot. I hear a lot of parents that are like, my kid won't eat this. And I'm like, don't give them a choice. Like it's not up for discussion in our house. Like it's like we put organic vegetables and beautiful food on his plate and it's not up for discussion. It's just not. It's either that. There's nothing else in the house. We don't have anything else in the house. So it's like, it's not up for discussion. And we just say that. We're just like, hey, buddy, it's not up for discussion. And sometimes he'll be like, I don't want that. And he's he's got over it now. Like over the years, he's, he's really got over whinging about broccoli and he just eats it because he knows he's not going to win that battle. It's like a non, it's a non-negotiable and it's not up for discussion. Discussion and we just like, hey, buddy, you know, it's like, like, it's not up for discussion. And then he kind of is like, yeah, yeah, okay, I may as well just eat it. Like, I'm not going to get anywhere. And so I really want to encourage parents listening to, first of all, don't have junk in the house. Do not have it in the house. And, and then, you know, there's no other options, you know. And I think it is more challenging if, you know, your kid is 15 and then all of a sudden you're like, we're eating this way now. And they have eaten like that for so long, but it's never too late. Um, but, you know, for as long as Leo has known, we've always eaten really healthily and even more so since I came into his life. You know, that reminds me of a, uh, a short little story about um, a movie that I was a very tiny part of um, called, I think it's called The Magic Pill. And it actually started filming in Australia. And um, one of the uh, people that was in the movie, this is like the most moving thing about the movie. And I wish they had included more of it, but um, there was a five-year-old autistic child that she was actually, I believe, in America. And her father had been, uh, I think, some kind of a meth addict or something. And, um, you know, they didn't have very healthy food um, in the house for many years. And then ultimately, um, 
a nutritionist said it was going to help a lot to um, to eat better and they themselves ate better first. And then, but the daughter, you know, being autistic, she just couldn't make the leap. Um, and so what they did actually, and this was very brave and they showed this was they just, they just did a cold Turkey thing and, um, nothing in the house. And she literally didn't eat for five days. And the dad said, you know, he was dying inside every minute of it, you know, because it was like, oh my God, oh my God, is this ever going to end? But at the fifth day, it was just like she picked up a fork and started eating. And she actually had picked up a fork for the first time then to start to resume eating in healthy food. And it was just like, that's what she was going to eat now. And that's, that was the end of it. Wow. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. I've actually had Pete Evans who produced that movie, The The Pill, on I've had him on the show. Yeah, right. So okay. we can link to that as well in the show notes. It's a great documentary. Please watch it with your kids, with your whole family. Um, I think that's also another really great thing to do. I have watched, you know, Food Matters and Hungry for Change with my parents. You know, I'm just like, hey, let's watch a documentary just to kind of inspire them and hopefully they jump on the bandwagon. But watching documentaries um, is really great to get your family on board instead of you kind of preaching all of the time. Another great one is called The Sugar Film. That's really great, uh, especially for kids. So, yeah, there's so many great resources out there and so many great documentaries and so many great books we have access to. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and your knowledge and uh, your book, Deep Nutrition, which I just loved and I highly recommend everyone go and check out. It is so amazing. And I also love, you know, all of the stuff that you spoke about, about... um dynamic symmetry which is another whole podcast in itself and we, we don't have we don't have time to go there today but please pick up deep nutrition it's an amazing book my husband and I both loved it and we just want to thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing thank you for this amazing information that you've shared with us today and um, thank you keep writing thank you so much Melissa it was really great speaking with you Please be mindful of these silent killers, the trans fats in your food when you go out at restaurants, cafes, and in any of the food that you buy in packets, boxes, cartons. Just start to be mindful of it. And I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. I sure did. And if you did, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire even more people together. And don't forget, you can tell me who you would like me to have on the show on social media, on either Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And for everything that Kate and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 93. And you can also check out all my other episodes there too. Also, just a reminder, you can now order my second book, Open Wide, A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships, and Soulful Sex. All you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide to get your copy now. And you can also check out the free video masterclass that Nick and I created at melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you leave me a five-star review in iTunes.
And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. Take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you have got to do to get this into their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.